This podcast deals with adult subject matter, including depictions of drug addiction, prostitution, sexual assault, and rape. Parental guidance is suggested. Officer Daniel Holtzclaw with the police department for three years is accused of raping and sexually assaulting women he pulled over while on the job. He said, come on, come on, just a minute, just a minute. I said, sir, I can't do this. I said, you're going to shoot. Your description of him. He's black. He's okay. He's black male. What did your daughter tell you? She said, I met this really hot cop. So this is good evidence? Well, you tell me. The following episode contains investigative events which occurred on June 18, 2014. Welcome back to Bates Investigates, the podcast, Season 1, The State of Oklahoma versus Daniel Holtzclaw. I am your host, licensed private investigator and original member of the Daniel Holtzclaw defense team, Brian Bates. This serialized podcast is presented from the perspective of the prosecution, but with the scrutiny of the defense. The prosecution's timeline, the prosecution's evidence, the prosecution's theories. However, I do not take those items at their face value like so many within the mainstream media and the public has up to this point. I apply the scrutiny, or the perspective, or dare I say, reality, of the defense. In this episode, I am going to do exactly what I was fearful my critics would accuse me of doing if I hadn't released the entirety of Daniel Holtzclaw's interrogation in last week's episode. I'm going to condense the interrogation and cherry pick it in this episode and give you my thoughts and insights, both what boded well for Holtzclaw and what ultimately raised red flags. I know episode 2 was a marathon episode coming in at just under 2 hours, but it's an important piece to this puzzle. To many people, it is that interrogation that made up their minds as to Holtzclaw's guilt or innocence. If you put 10 people in a room and play that interrogation, 5 will tell you it conclusively shows a guilty man, and 5 will tell you they have no doubt that they just listened to a completely innocent man profess his innocence and that declaration fell upon deaf ears. Why is that? It's pretty simple actually. Bias. We all have our own bias. We are biased either positively or negatively towards law enforcement. We have a bias for alleged sexual assault victims or we have a bias to question the legitimacy of alleged sexual assault victims. We have underlying racist tendencies, whether we admit to them or not. We apply the quote-unquote, what would I do in this situation bias. We become biased by third-party information or misinformation. The list goes on and on. When I was first hired to work on this case, I had not met Daniel Holtzclaw or his family. I was simply hired by his defense attorney to try and figure out if Daniel Holtzclaw was lying and what exactly he was lying about. Why? Because the sad reality is that many, actually, I dare say most, criminal defense clients lie to their defense team. They either claim to be completely innocent or they claim the charges are completely overblown. And in some cases, that's very true. The problem becomes trying to figure out which clients are being truthful and which clients are lying. And the lies, they are important to identify 
because the lies are the potential landmines in the defensive strategy. Those lies can explode in your face and be the difference between a plea, a guilty verdict, or complete exoneration. So why? Why do criminal defense clients lie to their defense team? In my over a decade of working on criminal cases, I'd say it comes down to two things. The first, denial. They simply can't come to terms with what they've done and their culpability in those criminal actions. Or, two, they are fearful if they admit to the crimes, then their defense team will not try as hard to help them avoid a criminal record or even incarceration. The first thing I did when I was asked to take a look at this case back in 2014 was to watch the interrogation video multiple times. The first time was just to get a feel for the interrogation. The second time was to take copious notes. What was the pattern or outline of the interrogation from the detective's perspective? What interrogation technique was being utilized? And most importantly, what exactly did Daniel Holtzclaw say and how does what he said differ from what Janie Ligon said and whose version does the evidence actually support? What I didn't pay much attention to were what so many within the court of public opinion actually fixate on. Holtzclaw's body language, his speech patterns, and well, whatnot. I learned long ago that unless you have something to go on, like the defendant's quote-unquote normal behavior under stress, or know the tells when that person is lying, then it's simply too easy to become distracted, misinterpret, or inadvertently reinforce any bias you may have by overanalyzing how a person is sitting, where they are looking, how they are talking, is that a nervous tick or is it a tell, and what does it all mean? Unfortunately, Holtzclaw was not given that same unbiased consideration by sex crimes detectives Kim Davis and Rocky Gregory. As I pointed out in episode one, Detective Davis admits that before she ever even scrutinized a single piece of evidence or even identified Holtzclaw as her suspect, that she had already determined that Liggins was in fact a victim and that she was telling the truth. Detective Davis's determination very early on to ensure that Holtzclaw was charged with one or more crimes was made even more evident when she obstructed Holtzclaw's right to a fair investigation by forbidding other detectives to utilize a very common investigative tool, the photo lineup. With that opinion already firmly planted in her subconscious, the interrogation only served to reinforce that bias. And there's a term for it, confirmation bias. This from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Confirmation bias is the tendency to produce information by looking for or interpreting information that is consistent with one's existing beliefs. This biased approach to decision-making is largely unintentional and often results in ignoring inconsistent information. Existing beliefs can include one's expectations in a given situation and predictions about a particular outcome people are especially likely to process information to support their own beliefs when the issue is highly important or self-relevant. Needless to say, both detectives Kim Davis and Rocky Gregory have openly admitted that this case was the biggest case of their careers. You'll recall from episode one, only an hour or two before this interrogation, Detective Davis was pulled aside and told, quote, the eyes of the department were on her. 
After I spent most of a day watching and re-watching Holtzclaw's interrogation, I next met with Holtzclaw's family and asked them to watch the video and tell me how they interpreted Daniel's body language and verbal responses since only they knew how Daniel reacted in such situations and would know what's considered his quote-unquote normal. Now I'm going to play a portion of a conversation I had with Daniel's father, Eric. Eric Holtzclaw has spent much of his life in law enforcement, both while in the military and as a civilian. Back in June of 2014, Eric Holtzclaw was, and still is today, a lieutenant with another police department in another city in Oklahoma. Daniel's high school hometown, actually. And you all went in the conference room and you watched the video. Right. We left you alone and you watched it. What What was your impression upon watching that video? A couple of things struck me right away is that I felt they made him feel very uncomfortable uh, because of the questioning. They started talking about things that really didn't pertain to what the, the allegations were, uh, his sexual preferences, which hands he masturbated with. Uh, she was talking this vulgar stuff that that you wouldn't need to talk to a police officer that way. Maybe some street thug that you're trying to est establish a rapport, but what she had was an opposite effect to, with Daniel, made him feel uncomfortable. He was talking about private sexual matters that you're talking to another police officer, not some street thug or some uh, known sex offender or, or something like that. So I thought that was really weird. And then I think Daniel still, when I look back at that deal, he was not aware of what they had already placed their bias on. Um, but also I felt Daniel felt uncomfortable, but I also said he looked very honest and truthful in the way he was answering. That's the way he would answer something that he was very serious and very scared, I think, at uh, the way that he was being talked to because I think he re started realizing, what's this about? And I says, I should stop this lady. And they're talking about, did you show him your penis? Did you did see her boobs? Did you ha-ha and all this kind of verbiage she was using? So uh, I think he was really miffed at what they were trying to place on him. And I don't think he realized the gravity of the situation during the interview. In fact, he was trying to trying to stay calm, I think, and say, you can do anything. Give me a polygraph. Take my DNA. I, I stopped this lady and I let her go. And now I'm being accused of sexual assault. And uh, and I think he was a little miffed at why he why he's being targeted on that. There's a lot to this interrogation and a lot to unpack, so let's jump in. I want to share something that many of you probably don't know. When an officer is promoted to detective within the Oklahoma City Police Department, there is no quote-unquote detective school they attend. Most of their training is simply on-the-job training shadowing another detective. And, if that detective has bad habits, they are likely to be passed on to the next detective. That said, like all law enforcement officers, there are opportunities for continuing education. Weekend or week-long seminars on various topics, like beware of confirmation bias and how to conduct a proper interrogation. We know confirmation bias has already taken hold in this investigation, like a cancer, and unless it's addressed, only continues to grow. But what can we learn from the interrogation itself? 
it appears the detectives are using some sort of a hybrid version of the Reed technique during their interrogation with Holtzclaw. The Reed technique is a technique first developed in the 1940s to elicit confessions from suspects. It's a three-pronged technique, isolation, maximization, and then minimization. Basically, it's the technique often portrayed on TV shows and movies. You first isolate the suspect from everyone else, thus the tiny, uncomfortable, windowless room. You tell the suspect you've got a lot of evidence and it doesn't look good for them. You follow up with some scenarios on how you think they committed the crime. Basically, you play the part of the bad cop. Then, you abruptly change direction and you go with the good cop approach. You comfort the defendant, you tell them you understand how this could have happened, and that if they would just cooperate with a confession, good things will come of it. The interrogation begins ominously enough. Welcome to our domain. What's your first name? Daniel is left to sit alone and uncomfortably until Detective Davis enters the room. Within three minutes of Daniel's arrival, the tables are turned on him. While he has read the Miranda warning many times to those he's arrested, this will be the first time he's ever been on the receiving end. You have the right to remain silent. You understand right. that? Okay. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Do you right. understand that? You have the right to talk to a lawyer and have him or her present with you while you're being questioned. Do you understand that? This is the point where, as a member of hundreds of defense teams, I would have advised Daniel to politely, yet firmly, exercise his rights and not said another word without an attorney present. But Daniel is both caught off guard, not fully aware of the extent of the allegations against him, and he's also a 27-year-old, naive enough to think that if he hasn't done anything wrong, then he has no harm in talking. Read this out loud. <clears throat> I've read the statement of my rights and understand what my rights are. I'm willing to make a statement and answer questions at this time. I do not want an attorney present at this time. Understand and know that what I'm doing, no promises or threats may have been made to me, and no pressure or force of any kind has been used against me. Agree? Agree. Sign print. Only six minutes into the interrogation, and you've gotten your suspect to waive his rights. And how does Detective Rocky Gregory choose to play his cards? I masturbate right and left. Okay. Does, that, does that work? Um, I think I do that left-handed. Very good. Well, I am dominant. You are? Yes. That awkward silence is only magnified when you see the corresponding video. The idea is simple enough. Bring yourself down to whatever level you think will make your suspect feel most at ease so that he will open up. It has the opposite effect. You can visibly see how uncomfortable Holtzclaw is with talk of masturbation and what hand someone uses. This play by detectives is just another example of their bias towards Holtzclaw. They had already sized him up as an overgrown child, a jock with a locker room vocabulary. Their assessment, however, could not be more wrong. You had said, and we told you that there was a traffic stop, right. that somebody made some allegations against an officer. Right. They don't know the officer's name, none of that. But, and you said that you made a traffic stop after work, yeah. but you didn't call it in. I didn't call it in. Where was that? It was about Northeast 50th and 
Lincoln just to the west. Okay. Tell me about that stop. For the first time in this investigation, we hear Holtzclaw's version of events in his own words. I was going westbound on Northeast 50th, probably a block just east of uh, Lincoln. I see a red Grand Prix, or Grand Am, in my right lane, and the outside lane, I'm in the inside lane. The car swerves, and so at the time I'm thinking, okay, it's a, probably a drunk person, or maybe he got excited because they saw a cop. So I kind of fall behind it, kind of drifting just a little bit, not crossing lane lines, nothing crazy. So I light it up because it, at first the traffic violation I saw at first when it swerved, um, that was just west of uh, Northeast 50th and Lincoln. And then made contact, it was a black female, um, asked for license insurance, um, stated that she didn't have insurance, gave me an ID. At the time I'm like, do you have a valid insurance or a valid license? She said no, I told her. I just got off work, I mean, <laughs> what's the deal? You know, why, why are you swerving? And she says, um, I'm just trying to go home to Ann Arbor-ish on the northwest side to see her daughter or something like that. Um, so I asked, is there anything on board as far as the vehicle? Is it okay if I search your vehicle and whatnot? She said, the only thing that's inside there is a Kool-Aid cup. I'm like, is there anything inside in that Kool-Aid? Is there liquor or anything inside that Kool-Aid? She's no. I'm like, okay, is there anything else inside there? She says, there's pills. I'm like, is that the only thing? And then, so I said, can you have permission to search your car? She says, yes, I go inside the car, I see a lot of pills. But, um, what kind of pills? I didn't really. Like scattered pills or in a bottle? She said it was hydrocoding pills, but I just quickly glanced, looked at it, and I think I saw her name on the prescription bottle, so I didn't. Oh, so it was a bottle? Right. Uh, okay. There were several bottles in her purse. And then, so at that time, I just returned back to her. It's like, um, okay, I saw your pills. I didn't see any alcohol. I sniffed the drink, didn't smell any alcohol, only Kool Aid. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm just off work. I'm tired. Um, get your license taken care of. Just mine. So she didn't have a driver's license? She didn't have a driver's license. And I was just like, go to DPS, uh, Department of Public Safety on King, get that taken care of. And I cut her loose after that. Then where'd you go? That one's straight home. Detective Davis immediately latches onto the fact that Holtzclaw made the traffic stop in question while off the clock and while his computer and AVL were intentionally turned off. Daniel explains that he doesn't often make off the clock traffic stops, but that he felt that he should in this case. Sort of officer intuition. I think it's important to point out it's not against police policy to make traffic stops while off the clock, especially since Daniel has a take-home patrol car. Daniel has done nothing wrong by pulling Liggins over. That said, turning off his computer and AVL is against police policy. But, as I pointed out in episode one, that policy was fairly new and prosecutors were forced to concede at trial that they had no proof Holtzclaw was even aware of the new policy. Regardless, as it has already been pointed out, Holtzclaw readily owned up to making the stop earlier that morning when it came up in lineup. Detectives Davis and Gregory will have Officer Holtzclaw go over the traffic stop several more times during the interrogation. The goal is to see if he changes his story to try to lessen his culpability. He doesn't. In fact, 
his version of events is rock solid and mostly matches Janie Ligon's version, except in several very key areas, as noted by Detective Davis. A thing that kind of concerns me is everything you're telling me is dead on to what she says. Everything. Except the sexual stuff. While that's important to note, it's not completely accurate and all of the discrepancies will become important as the investigation moves forward. Let's go over the points that differ in Holtzclaw's version of events when compared to Janie Liggins. While Holtzclaw denies any sexual assault occurred, he also denies that he ever made Liggins place her hands on his patrol car while he patted her down. Furthermore, Liggins also asserted that Holtzclaw placed his hands on the top of his patrol car to shield the view from passing motorists. That discrepancy did not go unnoticed by the detectives, and CSI technicians were at that very moment scouring the exterior of Holtzclaw's patrol car for fingerprint or DNA proof that Liggins's version of events was supported by forensic evidence. I will be discussing the result of that effort in the next episode. Holtzclaw also maintained that Liggins did not expose her breasts nor pull her pants down during the traffic stop. The detectives counter those assertions by insisting that the video from the surveillance cameras may show something different. Holtzclaw remains firm in his answer. As for the quote-unquote sex stuff, Janie Liggins just hours ago submitted herself for a SANE test. The results of that test will also be discussed in the next episode. Again, when Daniel is insistent that no sexual activity occurred, the detectives respond by claiming the video shows a lot of things going on and that it's not looking good for Holtzclaw. The detectives even go so far as to claim they found pubic hairs and tell Holtzclaw that they are going to test them. Holtzclaw, once again, is unwavering. Another important deviation from Liggins' version of events is the fact that Holtzclaw repeatedly mentions the presence of, quote-unquote, pills on board, which is police slang for the assertion he found pills in pill bottles marked with Liggins' name when he searched her purse. Liggins denies having any pills on her, and detectives make no attempt to verify if she has any valid prescriptions. The first time that question is explored is by the defense and just prior to trial. I'll give you my thoughts on the pills in a future episode. One thing that I noted was the amount of details that does indeed match Liggins's claims. Holtzclaw freely admits Liggins was cooperative but also very nervous, even frightened, continuously mentioning Holtzclaw's sidearm and the fact she thought he might shoot her. Had Holtzclaw had a guilty conscience, I do not think he would have included those details in his version of events. It would have been much easier and to his benefit to simply say she was not cooperative. She was belligerent. She was mad at him. That would have possibly given the detectives a reason to suspect Liggins was making the allegations up. But Holtzclaw is a straight shooter. He freely admits to details that he has to know may send up red flags. Holtzclaw initially thinks the complaint is limited to Ligon's claiming he may have touched her butt, 
made her expose herself or that she was offended by him standing with his crotch too close to her while she sat in the back of his patrol car and he stood between the car and the open door. About 22 minutes into the interrogation, things get a bit more ominous as the detectives tell Holtzclaw they need to take his quote-unquote buckles. That's cop lingo for they need to swab the inside of his mouth for DNA. That DNA will be compared to any DNA found from Liggins' rape kit. It's also at this time that detectives Gregory and Davis point out the following to Holtzclaw. We kind of bring it in here to right. see how truthful you are. Right. Now you need to kind of, kind of think of a few different things here. Okay. Okay. We pulled up a lot of video around that area okay. after these allegations. Okay. Okay. She also have a sane exam, which you know what that consists of. Right. There's a reason why we wanted your buckles. Okay. Okay. Now, I mean, we can go through a couple different things mm -hmm. of why we've got you in here, but you sure there's nothing you want to? Nothing. So if we go off the video and watch that, right. you're still going to stick with your story. Yes, sir. If we go off DNA? DNA as well. Should we show you the video? If yes. You, you do want to see it? Do I? Yes. So there's nothing that you... Everything that I recall of that night is what I what was I asked and everything. That's what happened. If I, have I maybe not asked enough questions? I think everything covered as far as that. Do you recall putting your penis in her mouth? I don't. Would you recall that if you did it? If I did it, yeah. Holtzclaw seems unfazed by these far more serious allegations. In fact, it's his composure and lack of emotion that I often hear from the public is what made some feel he must be guilty. I personally never read his reactions that way. Holtzclaw doesn't have a reputation for being explosive, having a temper, or even raising his voice. Virtually everyone I've ever spoken to who knew Holtzclaw consistently said that while he was a leader, he was more subdued or the silent type. Many people have even described him as shy, but confident. Holtzclaw seems to be reflecting those characteristics throughout this interrogation. Around 30 minutes into the interrogation, Detective Gregory switches gears and mentions another potential victim, Terry Morris. Morris is a 43-year-old black female who is admittedly perpetually homeless with addiction and mental health issues. Morris made an off-the-cuff sexual assault allegation against an unknown officer in recent weeks. Detectives Davis and Gregory know that Holtzclaw encountered Morris in early May, or about five weeks prior to the Janie Ligon stop. Let's switch up for a second. You had another girl, okay? Mm -hmm. You probably don't, not necessarily going to remember the name, but her name is Terry Morris, okay? Black female. Um, Supposedly, you promised her a ride to the city rescue mission. This ring a bell? No. You did a, a traffic stop with her. Uh, she thought you ran for warrants. Was it clicking? You drove her around. Mm -hmm. no. Name doesn't. I don't recall a name like that. She's claiming the same thing. The exact same thing. And here again. For whatever reason, if 
things are pointing at you again. Right. Now this was before even this incident this morning. Traffic stopped, not logged in, all that stuff. In the detectives' minds, the Morris allegations are identical to the Ligon's allegations, an off-the-clock encounter that leads to forced or coerced oral sex from the alleged victim. Further investigation that we will explore in the coming weeks proves that the similarities in these two allegations are almost non-existent. Two additional questions that Detective Davis asked and Daniel answered will have particular importance as the case evolves. Do you run everybody that you come in contact with? Majority of the time. Do you give people rides sometimes? I do give people rides. Do you? I do. Eventually, detectives get around to what is probably the most controversial part of the interrogation. Did Daniel Holtzclaw try to have sex with his then-girlfriend when he got home from the Ligon's traffic stop? When you went home, was anybody home? Um, my girlfriend was home. Did you, did you get laid? Huh? No, she didn't. She just stayed. Did you get laid? Uh, messed around, yeah. What's messed around? Sex? Uh, I guess we were all adults. We almost had sex, and she was tired. What'd you do? So my penis went around her vagina, and, and then maybe went a little bit in, and then she pushed me off and said, "No, we don't want to. I'm tired." I was like, "Okay." Eventually, Detective Davis gets around to excusing herself and calling Holtzclaw's girlfriend, Carrie. She'll ask Carrie if Holtzclaw did indeed try and have sex with her when he got home earlier that same morning. Detective Davis doesn't like the answer she gets, but in her mind, it's the answer she's been looking for. A lie. I just talked to Carrie. Okay. She said she was asleep when you got home and you did not try to have sex and you did not have sex. I did try to have sex. She said you didn't. And I asked her, could you have been asleep? And you have kind of, whoa, no. And she said, no, she, you did not try to have sex. As much as I don't want to evolve her, I tried to have sex with her and she was asleep. Carrie goes to sleep pretty early, about nine, 10 at the late. Okay, but she would know if you tried. I'm a woman. I know. And, and my husband comes <laughs> home in the middle of the night and I'm like, are you kidding me? I've been asleep. You said you twirled around her vagina I did. and you put it in a little bit and then she said, I'm tired. No. I did. She would remember that to tell me. She, maybe she yeah. said you did not try to have sex. <laughs> and it's more personal because it's Carrie, but I did try to have sex with Carrie. I did. I, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, because it just looks like I just caught you in a lie and now I don't know I, what to believe. I don't know if Detective Davis really considers this a lie on Holtzclaw's part, or if she just knows she needs to make him think he was caught in a lie so that maybe he'll start to crack. Personally, I don't know why Detective Davis assumes it's Holtzclaw telling the lie and not the girlfriend. I do know this, if some stranger called my wife while she's at the gym and asked if I tried to have sex that morning, my wife is probably going to tell that person off. At the very least, she is going to deny it because it's simply nobody's business. To put Carrie's response in perspective, she's at a public gym working out, she's literally a pastor's daughter, 
and she's the sister of a prosecutor in the sex crimes unit of the Oklahoma County DA's office. She's also been trying to get a hold of Holtzclaw on his phone for the past hour. Lastly, Carrie also suffers from insomnia and takes sleeping medication most nights. She'll later testify that Daniel may have very well tried to have sex with her and that she simply doesn't remember it because she was in such a deep sleep and it's not uncommon for Holtzclaw to initiate sex when he gets off work. The mood in the room changes. Detective Davis, who is playing the part of the bad cop, calls Daniel out as a liar. She'll continue this line of attack for the rest of the interrogation. It does get to Daniel, but there will be no confession. Daniel is adamant that he didn't do anything wrong and that he wants the detectives to quote-unquote get it done. He repeatedly says this. He wants the DNA tested. He wants the video analyzed. He wants a polygraph. You got any questions about this? <laughs> I mean, you, I'm you getting attacked now. I'm just feeling, oh my God, bless. I want DNA, I want everything, I want to get it done. We're, we're going to put it to the front of the line, okay? Get it done. You'd be willing to take a polygraph on it? Yeah. We're going to call tomorrow. We can't get a hold of the polygrapher today. Okay. On the video, are we going to see her boobies? Shouldn't see her boobs. I didn't see her boobs. Okay. Are we going to see her pull her pants down? I didn't see her pull her pants down. Okay. Are we going to see your penis out? Nope. Are we going to see your penis go in her mouth? No. Are we going to get any DNA to that? No. Daniel repeatedly expresses his desire to cooperate fully and to get this investigation over with as soon as possible. Daniel wants to clear his name desperately because he is very aware what these sort of allegations can do to negatively impact an officer's career. Yeah, I've never been in trouble like this before. I've never got accused of anything like this or nothing. I heard of officers going through this and and whatnot, and that's something I don't want my rep to be, you know, about. You know, I'm, I'm a good officer, I, I don't, that's not me, It's not me. As the detectives wrap up the nearly two-hour interrogation, they turn their attention to Holtzclaw's uniform pants. Your pants, these are the pants you wore last, last shift? Uh, yes. It is? Yes. Okay. About your underwear? No. Where are they at? Uh, in the wash. They're in the washer? Washer. Washer. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, need your pants. Okay. As the detectives step out of the room, Holtzclaw asks if he can call his girlfriend and let her know he's going to be heading home soon. We're, we're really done with you. Okay. Just hang back. Can I can I message her and say I'll I'll because she's probably blowing on my phone. Really? Just like hey, I'll You're talk fine. to you. You're fine. Hey baby, babe, I need to <laughs> I need to tell you what's going on. It's crazy. I said, when I'm, on, I'm basically on my way home, and I'd like to talk to you. What's going on? It's, it's crazy. Yeah, give me. Uh, they gotta give me a ride, so I don't know, probably 10, 15 minutes. Till I 
get 15, yeah, around there. I don't know, 15, 20, 30 minutes around there. Yes. I don't know. It's I. I gotta tell you, it's it's crazy. They're just that's nuts. I gotta. So I love you, okay. I love you. It's important to note what can be observed in the video version of this interrogation when Holtzclaw changes out of his uniform pants and into a pair of gym shorts. Holtzclaw is not just wearing pants. There is an entire system of layers underneath his clothing. For starters, his underwear. They are athletic compression shorts that are extremely tight-fitting and have no fly. He's also wearing a muscle shirt, a bulletproof vest with a flap that hangs below his groin, and then his uniform shirt. The shirt is actually physically held in place below his groin by shirt stays that connect the bottom of his shirt to the top of his socks. The purpose is specifically to keep his uniform shirt tucked tightly into his pants. As Holtzclaw confirmed to me and his girlfriend would later testify, this layering makes even simple tasks like using the restroom cumbersome to say the least. Yet, time after time, Accusers who have no idea the complexity of Holtzclaw's uniform will insist that he exposed his penis through the fly of his pants with little to no effort at all. Detective Gregory returns to the room to collect Holtzclaw's uniform. Pants in this bag and just put the unless you want to keep the shirt on. I don't know. I don't know if this shirt's gonna be big enough for you here. Big old boy. I was gonna get a Tyvek, so I don't know where these came from. That rustling noise you just heard is Detective Gregory opening a paper evidence sack and literally placing his ungloved hand into and throughout the bag. By all measure, Detective Gregory has shown his complete incompetence by violating a very basic evidence collection rule. Do nothing to contaminate evidence collected for DNA analysis. By placing his hand inside the bag, he has just introduced and possibly transferred any DNA on his hands into the sterile environment of the evidence bag. Furthermore, Detective Gregory allows Holtzclaw to roll up his uniform pants and place them in the evidence bag, all while his belt is still in place and possibly transferring DNA to multiple locations. What's also important to note at this time is what detectives choose not to collect from Daniel Holtzclaw. They decide not to ask for his complete uniform. They let him keep his uniform shirt, bulletproof vest, and t-shirt, all of which clearly hung below his waistline and could contain DNA from one or more accuser. They don't even bother to collect his underwear, the underwear of a man they suspect of being a serial rapist. The detectives later brush off that idea because Holtzclaw told them that the underwear he wore during his previous shift were in the washer. 
but they also have been very clear that they think Holtzclaw is a liar. So why choose to believe him now? And why choose to believe him in regard to such a critical piece of evidence? Detectives never even seek a search warrant to retrieve his underwear or uniform or other items from his apartment. In fact, even though law enforcement routinely performs search warrants, these detectives never go to his home, never search his computer, and literally gave him his cell phone back after finding that he left it in his patrol car prior to the interrogation. Holtzclaw was being completely cooperative and expressed a desire to do anything to get the investigation over with. This was a perfect time to get him to sign a consent to search form for his home, his computer, and his cell phone. But these seasoned detectives did none of that. After being left alone in the interrogation room for one last time, two uniformed officers enter the room and let Daniel know what will happen next and offer to give him a ride home. Hey Dan. Hey man. Oh, it's hot in here. Yeah, it is. Hey, uh, until this investigation gets all completed, what's going on? We're gonna put you on administrative leave of pay, okay? Sure. Just part of procedures, you know, and they gotta see this until it gets all taken care of, yeah. okay? So what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna give you this to sign that you're receiving it. And I'm huh. gonna give you a copy to take home. I want you to read it very carefully when you get home because okay. there's some details to other people forget to read. You know, such as you gotta check in with me on every Tuesday morning before nine o'clock. Okay. Call me at the station and just make sure I know who you are and where you're at. And he's gonna take these things home? Yes, he can take those home. He can take those home. That, those items with you, you can take. Okay. All right? Okay. And like that, it's over. Daniel Holtzclaw will never again wear the badge and gun of an Oklahoma City police officer. But he's not under arrest and he's not yet charged with any crimes. In next week's episode, we will wrap up the Janie Liggins allegations with the results of the forensic testing, analysis of the surveillance video, a late night call from Liggins to a relative who works for the Oklahoma City Police Department, and Ligon's decision to go public in her first TV interview only five days after her alleged sexual assault. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a five-star review. If you'd like to know more and see many of the files used to compile this episode, please visit this season's homepage at HoltzclawTrial.com. You can also follow updates on our Facebook page at In Defense of Daniel Holtzclaw or on Twitter at Holtzclaw Trial. Bates Investigates Season 1, The Daniel Holtzclaw Case, is researched, produced, and edited by me, Brian Bates. This has been a Bug Stomper production.